0: Clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Both those of you here with us at 45 Rockefeller Plaza and those joining via Microsoft Teams from around the world, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us for today's uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 40th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming, Proof Loyalty CEO, Chris Barnes, and world-renowned winemakers, Jean Huffliner and Philippe Belka. If you're unable to be with us for the entirety of today's session, a replay will be made available shortly after we conclude via our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. With that, it's my pleasure, as always, to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming.
1: Thank you, Tom. It's one of the nice things about being live. It's the first time I've been cheered for in a long time. <laughs> uh, welcome everybody. Uh, as I always like to say, uh, Rockefeller clients, uh, our colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller, welcome to uh, Tom, what did you say 39th or 40th? Uh, we've been doing uh, events like this for uh, our clients since the beginning of the pandemic. And for much of it, it was virtual. And it was an effort to make sure that we stayed in close touch with our clients and kept a continuous conversation with people that are so important to Rockefeller Capital Management. Now that uh, we're in a different stage, we're starting to mix in some live slash virtual events, and today will be both. It'll be live slash virtual. So as Tom said, I'm uh, Greg Fleming, the CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management, uh, and uh, I've got three individuals who are going to do this with me today, one live and two uh, virtually. We try to make this series very special and we've mixed it up nicely with uh, titans of business, finance, as well as uh, people who come from a different perspective and and talk about really interesting things. Uh, We think today we have the confluence of a number of things that will make this particularly special for everybody. So we're going to have a conversation with two of the uh, wine industry's renowned leaders, Jean Hoflicker and Philippe Melka, names synonymous with Uh, And my briefing note said 100 point wines, but that's not what they're about. They're about excellence. Maybe that's a 100 point wine, maybe it's not, but they're about excellence and you're gonna hear that. In a slight change of plan, uh, Jean, uh, who was going to be here in person, just tested positive for COVID. So I keep trying to move past it, but it's still here at least a little. Uh, He's feeling well enough to join us remotely. So he's on the screen uh, and I'm gonna give full introductions of Jean and Philippe in a second. Philippe uh, is also joining us remotely, but that was originally planned. We will hear their views, not just on the art of winemaking, but on the growing threats posed by climate change to their business. We're also going to introduce you to the latest of our lifestyle advisory platforms. And I'm particularly proud of the lifestyle advisory uh, relationships that we've built for our clients as part of their experience at Rockefeller Capital Management. And today we're gonna talk about proof loyalty which is a leading purpose-driven wine platform, providing an exclusive world-class source for those interested in quality wines, insider offers, and access to unique experiences. So Chris Barnes, who's the innovative founder and CEO of Proof Loyalty, and who picked these two distinguished winemakers to be with us here today, in a matter of seven years, has built an exceptional network operating at the highest levels of the wine world. So Chris, uh, great to have you here. And Chris. We're going to ask some questions of Chris. I'm going to ask questions of the winemakers. We'll take questions from the audience and we'll mix it all in. Now, not coincidentally, and when I say that uh, our marketing team did this intentionally, where's uh, Lisa uh, Manganella, who uh, deserves a lot of credit for this. This is World Ocean Day today. So this is all intentional. And we wanted to draw attention to the effects of global warming on the entire oceanic ecosystem. A feature of proof loyalty is that 10% of all revenues from the partnership with Rockefeller Capital Management will go to a partner of our choice. And we've selected the Ocean Foundation, a preeminent global nonprofit tackling specific threats to ocean health, among them acidification, plastics, the pain that we all feel when you're in a spectacular place and it's completely remote, and then you see the plastic bottle uh, and the protection of species. So I want to welcome Mark Spaulding, president of the Ocean Foundation, uh, a leading advisor to Rockefeller Asset Management on our sustainable investing strategies. Where is Mark? Mark, great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now, this is uh, uh, particularly meaningful to Rockefeller because the Rockefeller family were the pioneers, literally pioneers in sustainable investing, dating all the way back to the 1970s when the family office began public and private investment programs that incorporated environmental, social values into advice. Now, uh, the phrase, I like to say the phrase impact investing was uh, coined uh, by the Rockefellers within the Rockefeller Foundation in 2007. So this incredible family really is on the leading edge of sustainable investing. Now, Rockefeller Asset Management uh, continues to build on that heritage bringing a dedicated ESG approach to the entire investment process. So this is a near and dear to our hearts here at Rockefeller. Uh, we're building it right into the business that uh, that we do with our asset management clients and often with our wealth management clients as, uh, as well. So it's great to have you here and uh, we appreciate all that you do uh, for Oceans, which are relevant to all of us. So now onto our guest on the screen. So Jean Hoflinger is advisor to 33 wineries worldwide born, raised, and educated in Switzerland, which somebody just pointed out, Sean, I was assuming you were French, so uh, sorry about that. Uh, your career path is taking you through some of the most prominent wineries in Bordeaux, Italy, South Africa, and California. And Chris was actually saying, part of the reason he picked the two of you is you're fantastic at what you do, but it's global. You've been really everywhere, uh, which I did realize from some of the prep work we did. With a degree in viticulture, He's consulted on many of the best known brands in the world. He brings not just extraordinary passion and knowledge, but also scientific training to his craft. You all are gonna hear this. These people care a lot about how to do this and to do it well. So welcome, Jean. Good to have you here. And I appreciate you being here uh, with COVID. And uh, uh, I'm assuming since you're here, it's not treating you too badly, I hope.
2: Uh, no, thanks thanks for having me. No, it's actually the reason why I have a virtual background because I I think nobody wants to see my bedroom.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna debate that with you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Philippe Melka and his wife, Cherie, owned Melka Estates in St. Helena, California. Born in Bordeaux, so Philippe is French, Philippe started out studying soils and eventually earned a master's in agronomy and enology. He worked or consulted in Italy, Australia, and France before being drawn, he once said, to the more challenging work ethic in California. I'm not sure which way that cuts, but we're gonna talk about that. So Philippe, it's great to have you here as well. Uh, I'm going to come to you all in one second, but since Chris is sitting here on the platform with me, I wanted to start with one question for uh, Chris. We'll mix a few in as we go on, Chris, but uh, you did pick these two incredible gentlemen. Uh, You started this company, Proof Loyalty, uh, and uh, you said it was inspired by Patagonia and I told Chris and many of the people in the audience should uh, know that we also uh, I interviewed Yvonne Schwinard uh, on the program the founder of Patagonia uh, so how did proof loyalty come about and what's your connection to Yvonne
0: yeah, that's good uh, just for for uh... Clarification, with with Yvonne, uh, the purpose-driven aspect of our business was inspired by Yvonne. Okay. Um, as we discussed, I'm a lifelong skier, so I've been f- familiar with uh, Patagonia products for a long time. they 1% for the planet, I always thought was a great program, uh, stepping up to really uh, contribute and try to do something themselves. And then recently they changed their, their uh, uh, corporate uh, promotions as, you know, here to save the world. So I was quite inspired by that, um, and I just felt like if we have a chance, if there's a way, then we should all contribute. And this is my way of of contributing and developing the uh, Live Well, Do Good program with our uh, wine platform. As far as how proof loyalty came about, um, uh, I'll cut it short, but we I started out building an app platform for the wine industry. And because I'd had a publishing company prior to that, and uh, they weren't too uh, accepting of the app, uh, wineries are very traditional. So we pivoted over to this platform, this lifestyle, uh, purpose-driven lifestyle platform that we have now, and uh, and I get to work with wonderful winemakers like you know Yvonne and I remember with. Uh, Philippe and and Jean, but but many others, and uh, and I've got a passion for wine. I used to have property up in up in Calistoga. I've spent a lot of time around the wine industry, and so uh, that's that's pretty much how it came
1: about. It's excellent. Uh, if we have time, I want to come back to the skiing, because uh, I know you've skied all over the all over the North America and Europe. A lot of Europe, yeah. a lot of U.S. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Chile too. Uh, wow. Uh, So, uh, Jean and Philippe, let me come to you, and uh, I I do want to start by, um, uh, a a little of it's in the bio, but uh, Jean, why don't we start with you first, Uh, how you came into the winemaking business, Uh, was there an event, or was this something you wanted to do from a a young age, Uh, I think uh, uh, our listeners would love to hear that.
2: Yeah, well, actually, it, would, it could be summarized with one word, failure, uh, um, because believe it or not, I was actually in law school uh, in, the, in, in Switzerland because every male in my family went through law on both sides of the ocean uh, because my mom's from Boston. And, 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 and so since every single male has been through that pattern, I thought, let's let's do that as well and, and, and attended law school. But after two years, I noticed that, that the only thing that I really, truly learned was actually to play card and taste wine so after that i told myself okay i know swiss people it's almost like french without the pretension uh, are slow but but let's do something a little bit different so i got a proposal into the actually into the wealth management uh, you know swiss being with the banking system that that we know and stuff like that to follow that pattern. Pattern. And and somebody at the time threw in, oh, I guarantee you a six-digit income if you follow the pattern that I have for you. And I said, oh, why not? Money is good. I tried. And, and, and the same thing after three years, I said, no, that's not still my passion. And so that's when I, I, I kind of realized that that for the last two, three, four years, I was really into. Tasting wines and visiting different places, uh, different wine regions, and decided to, to to jump in it and 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 literally started as a cellar rat uh, to, to first make sure that it was going to be what I was going to to make my life out of, and you know went to Switzerland and to the US, and to South to South Africa, Italy, Bordeaux, and then came back to Switzerland to you know to to do all the degrees that lead you to be a to be a winemaker.
1: That's excellent. You know, I went to law school, and I don't remember a lot of cards and wine, though, either. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, uh, Philippe, what about uh, what about you?
3: Well, thanks, Greg. Um, before talking about uh, how I was involved in the wine business, I just want to to make a little point because that's a little bit the game between Jean and I. You know, when you talk about a uh, little bit my resume, so uh, as You know, you forgot about something, as Jean mentioned, that he has 33 clients uh, around the world. Uh, I want to make sure people understand I have 34, so (laughs) that's that's one of the important parts I wanted to make, you know. But now to to go back to to my story and to really um, make a point, Uh, like Jean, it's a little bit I would say more like by the, the back door of the business if you will. Yes, I'm French. Yes, I'm from Bordeaux. Uh, so when you put those two together, oh, this guy is from Bordeaux, probably his family is from into the wine business and naturally became a winemaker, but uh, not at all my all my folks are either way doctors or teachers, so they are nothing to do with with winemaking and uh, I had a chance to start with a degree in geology. And I think, you know, obviously from Bordeaux. Um, and um, I also had the chance to have this amazing teacher who really guide me uh, to be in this business. And this really kind of uh, expertise was the notion of terroir. I'm sure you guys all uh, uh, heard about it. Uh, the relationship between soil and the different soil type, if you wish, with uh, with grapes and the different wine. Character, personality. So that's what I study first. And then, from not knowing much about wine, I had the chance, I would say, to uh, to really to learn from the best in the business, and the I would say the people who has really worked their whole life in uh, understanding the the high end uh, part of this business with Chateau Briand on one hand. And the wax company, on the other hand, who owned Petrus and of course Dominus in Napa. And the story briefly was back in early 90s when I started. Um, everybody was saying Napa Valley are making great wine, but there is a there is a lack of, of, we don't really feel the terroir uh, into those wines. So they sent me to Napa to really uh, study their vineyard and, and trying to to get a feel of the potential of it and I already I mean I basically realized the quality of Napa Valley very quickly fell in love with it and you know I've been around for 30 years now so that's pretty much my story.
1: Those are both great stories uh and uh, the 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 excellence and the success are, are uh are incredible, and they come down to the way that you do things. But before we get there, can uh, maybe we'll go back to Jean. Can you describe a little bit the winemaking process for those less familiar with it? Uh, even people who like wine often just end up in the end with the bottle. So can, can you walk through, how do you go about each vintage each year, uh, and then maybe Philippe, you could uh, f- fill in the edges there. So Jean, you go first. Well, Greg, Greg,
2: first, the first thing I, I really want to point out, if, if you guys don't understand his really, really, really strong accent, I can always translate. Uh, you know, so, so that's the difference between Swiss and French as well, so you need to actually understand how to speak and pronounce a language. Uh, but, but, yeah, you know, the winemaking process is, is first and foremost a vegetative cycle, so you cannot go faster than the plant's growth and the plant's cycle. And it starts, of course, in the vineyard, the vine, the plant. And and what Philippe said earlier, he talked about terroir. What is terroir? We all have our individual definition of terroir. But terroir is really, for me, the equation of a plant in a soil with a climate, but also formed by the people around and the culture around. So the interaction of all these different factors defines the terroir of a wine. Of course, as you mentioned, there's a year, a vintage, and the conditions in any given vintage are going to drive, is it a small berry, a big berry? Uh, is it going to be more concentrated? Was it warmer, less acid? And these are what we, Philippe and I, winemakers like us, you know, use to make the decision, right? To really kind of not only, of course, understand, because today we have much a much better understanding, thanks to science, of, of all that data, of all uh, how much does the plant transpire, uh, what is your relative humidity, uh, there's so many different factors. And then harvest comes and it's really, the, the process becomes almost from the plant and the fruit to the fruit and the winemaker. And that's where, you know, the most impact, I think, should be given to the product because the plant has the tendency to almost self-regulate itself, to certain exception, of course, yield-wise, uh, you know, dropping some fruit or, or canopy management, how much leaf do you leave on the plants. But once you harvest, you know, the, the impact of, of certain winemaking decisions are, decision are completely uh, influencing or changing the pattern of the DNA of the wine that that, that, that you can. If you have a red terroir, as, as, as Philippe said many times, uh, you know, uh, to, to, together, when we were either working together or tasting together, a great terroir should almost stay on touch even through the winemaking process, but sometimes the terroir is not as great. And so that winemaking process is really the transformation of a grape, a berry uh, into a fruit juice, if you want, into into wine, into alcohol, because yeast transforms sugar into alcohol uh, during the fermentation project. And during that process, you regulate extraction, you regulate how much you're gonna ask from that berry, from these skins to release. And believe it or not, when you press, Uh, uh, you know white uh, 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 red grape it's actually white juice so what really makes it you know the color is just the circulation of that that juice on the skin the physical action and all that process is fermentation and then of course you have the aging part in the veil.
1: and philippe uh, maybe for you to fill out what does a typical day look like for you as you're kind of going through that whole process that jean just said
2: well,
3: it's um, I wanted to uh, almost uh, uh, ask Jean if he could repeat the middle part of his speech because I kind of missed all of that. But just uh, just playing around, it's going to be a lot of that, and I really apologize it's, uh, if you make the audience a little uncomfortable. Um, I have to but say that you know, that I, I'm um, very disappointed start, uh, this guy's life. to talk yeah. about maybe. Uh, uh, almost uh, why we're we in this business uh, and especially when we are in a consulting business uh, I think that's really uh, the interesting part for me because uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, I would say diversity in this business and a lot of things to think about sometimes and it's like like Jean said a little bit it's a seasonal business so there's a lot of different season like if I talk about the classic day, uh, during harvest, uh, people have to uh, realize that for us harvest lasts from uh, the months of August to when we start usually with the whites. I'm talking even in Napa and Sonoma, so on those two, uh, two wine regions. Um, we start in August with the whites and we finish uh, sometimes early November uh, with the reds. and it's really a 24-7 business. It's uh, the grapes uh, you know, they don't have the weekend. Uh, they don't have lunchtime and dinner time, so you, you really have to be. I would say it's almost a pressure harvest, like uh, a battleship in a way. It's almost like a war. You have to be uh, feeling like you are going to be hit from all kind of angle with all kind of different questions, because really the, the major part of quality of the vintage beside the. Uh, what basically Jean mentioned about really the the regulation of the plant and then really throughout the vintage, trying to manage the canopy, make sure all the leaves that's in the right place to protect the clusters, but also to function to develop the best aromatic complexity. Uh, But also we are focusing on the crop level within the plant uh, because too much crop is not good. Uh, too little crop is not good because we want to really have an harmony between all those beautiful clusters and the canopy level so this balance is very important to us uh, and uh, at the at the end uh, the maturity process it's really one of the key and the harvest timing is really one of the key of the quality so we want to make sure we we decide to harvest the grapes at the optimum maturity of them, if you wish. And that's part require on uh, for us as a typical day. A lot of driving throughout the whole valley to uh, look at all those different uh, vineyards to make sure they are not in needs and they are basically uh, taken care of. Uh, So at least the typical day to mention a lot of espresso, a lot of coffee, a lot of driving. and uh, uh, a lot of trying to understand the vintage very quickly to be able to really uh, use uh, and uh, showcase the best part of those vintages.
1: And what, uh, uh, and I know this is probably, it could be a a long answer or a complicated answer, but um, what makes, uh, what in particular makes a very successful year, and as you're going along during the year, do things happen where you know this is going to be particularly good or bad for the quality of the wine in that year? John, why don't you go first on that? So what, what makes it particularly good? And do you have, because you all have so much experience and, and you understand what you're doing, do you recognize as, as you're going through the year, things happen, good weather, bad weather, where you're, you, you know this is gonna be more or less uh, problematic as a, as a vintage?
2: Yeah, you know the, the beauty, the beauty, Greg, is, of, of what we do is—is is there's an entire part of the equation we can't control, and and that is the climate, the vintage, the interaction, uh, the natural interaction of of the plant in, in, in with this, this climate. So I, I will start by saying that for me, a very successful year, especially in the situation we find ourselves today, and one of the subject that we will address is, of course the climatic demand that the vintage imposes. Uh, as, as you all know, we had a couple of difficult years with fires, with, with 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 problems. Well, for me, the worst enemy of Napa Valley is actually heat. And so the, the first thing to understand is really, how do we, in a successful year, mitigate uh, the heat that can sometimes be excessive, right? The, Positive side, the greatness of Napa is of two for me: uh, the, the the high diversity of geological formations, uh, uh, in and and there's there's more than a hundred geological geological variation in Napa Valley in something that is fairly small environment. I mean, Napa is less than five percent of California wine production. And second is the consistency of climate. But within that consistency of climate, heat sometimes becomes and especially with climate change become so extreme that you have to mitigate that. So, so for me, a successful vintage and a successful season is, a, is definitely a season that had no drama and that was a little bit more consistent with less heat spells, right? And with less days above 95 degrees Fahrenheit that has an impact on the grapes. And if you start with that equation, then it's really the job of of us philippe and i and winemakers to just respect that and transform and really express what the climate and the vintage gave you so philippe uh, just to build on that as you're
1: going through the the year and 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 uh maybe the climate is consistent maybe it's not you have a sense of of how it's going and and where you need to make adjustments and as jean said some things are outside your control but uh and you, you 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 analogize it to a battleship it's kind of it's a uh, you're, you're you're at it all year but along the way you know this is going well this isn't maybe i should adjust this uh, just talk a little bit about that
3: uh yeah so uh, absolutely Greg. thank you um i would say uh also what is important is like at least for between winemakers and people in a business we always talk about for us at least personally the perfect vintage is when there is a minimum of uh, human intervention because the climatic conditions are so perfect uh, that basically we have enough water during spring to refill the the soil Uh, so the vines when they start pushing really have the necessary uh, water available to grow perfectly and then the climatic conditions are not too warm and not too cold and they are very in harmony uh, so which means you know there is this kind of gentle and slow matur- maturity of the grapes who kind of allowed the we always feel have a better aromatic development because what we're looking for at the end the final product it's always about the balance between Uh, uh, You know, the acidity is like food, and you need enough acidity and and the sweetness is basically the alcohol. The alcohol brings a sensation of sweetness. And then there's a tannic structure which really has the foundation of wine. And if you balance them, those three, uh, you really get the best harmony in wine. So there's some years where, like John mentioned, that we have to battle the heat. where the drought, as we all know in California, uh, no, no water during spring uh, can lead to uh, very early irrigation basically on our side to compensate the lack of water in the ground uh, to heat waves uh, during the maturity process where we really fight uh, as well in a vineyard. But either way, like I talk about managing the canopy, you have a lot of more leaves to protect basically those, those clusters Especially from direct sun to sometimes using shed cloth to really block the sun at the cluster level, to using the irrigation tool also to help the vines to recuperate from those extreme conditions. So that's what we try to monitor. To again, to at the end, uh, basically when we we harvest uh, the grapes and it's not always uh, the case we have um, those perfect uh, little berry. Of course, we didn't talk about what we can do at the winery when we receive the grapes. So far, we are focusing on vineyard. But of course, at the winery, we we are doing a lot of things as well to make sure when we start fermenting uh, the grapes, um, uh, basically, we we call that we have those perfect little caviar pieces, um, if you wish. I wanted to mention very briefly, uh, just for the fun of it. uh, When you mentioned about the the day to day work, you have to realize during harvest. Actually, we almost need uh, to go to uh, a diet after harvest and a cleanse because we are, you know, to to make the decision of harvesting because we very it's a very hands on. um, It's very even if there is a lot of technology around this business, at least on the high end is like anything else. uh, It's really based on a palette, so we have to test berries all all day long, which means a lot of sweetness and acidity. We have to also test uh, during the fermentation the wine to see how we need to extract uh, the color and the flavors. Uh, So those wines have a lot of uh, carbonic uh, 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 gas if you wish, so that's very aggressive on a system. And so the whole thing is like after two months of doing this, we really need like those two months of cleanser or whatever you call it to really readjust adjust a whole organic system. At least that's my case. Obviously Jean doesn't need this because he's a special guy, yeah. but uh, on my side, that that's kind of the the part of it that people maybe sometimes. Uh, don't realize yeah, maybe you go to
1: you go to Switzerland uh, where uh, Jean is from and, and go to one of those cleanse places but <laughs> well, when um, when you all are, 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 are walking the process along do you know at some point in time as it starts to through the fermentation process if we stay on that part of it and you can see my knowledge here is is a couple inches deep relative to you but do you, do you know do you start to say to yourself wow this is a really special year can, you know is there a time when you actually start to say you know this and I know we you, you all are not big on the point system and more on the the the, the your, you know the way it tastes to you but do you start to see this is going to be you know 2014 is going to be an unbelievable year
2: so early early greg when 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 philippe said something that is extremely important to answer your question it is our job uh, to, to realize what the vintage is taking fairly early on uh, um, and, and the other great thing about being a consultant like like Philippe or, or, or myself is also because we are actually facing many more equations. Uh, because I'm, I'm 49 years old, you know, if, if I'm lucky enough, I have 30 other vintages to make. So that's one vegetative cycle uh, per year. So when when you are a consultant, you're exposed to many more equations that help you learn faster. And so because we're exposed in any given vintage to so many more vineyards, to so many more uh, locations, we can actually deduct what the vintage is going to look like earlier. And then when you go and transfer, transfer that to fermentation really early on, Can you and are we requested, obliged to really identify the potential of the vineyard, a vintage, sorry, because that will determine and give us the clues and the indication of how to make the wine let me explain this in some way if you are in a vintage that had ample rain very big berry size development uh you know and then you end up with with fairly large berries well you know that you're gonna have to do sennier right remove some juice to readjust a little bit the skin to juice ratio because everything you want in a wine is actually content is contained into the skin so if you have a big berry vintage you want to do certain things to balance your wines if you have a small berry vintage you have a lot of concentration, a lot of power, but often a lot of tannins, right? So all these equations with acidity, pHs and others are going to help us make the decision on how to extract and how to fashion the wine. So these vintage, this vintage understanding is really important early on. And yes, when we you are at the tank and you taste, one, two, three, four, 10, 15. I mean, I, I know that that Philippe is 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 kind of in the same boat. I mean, there's days during harvest where I taste 250 wines because I'm tasting certain specific things. I'm not analyzing the wine. I'm really looking into where our in extraction is, their fault, etc. By tasting that many, you know, lots, blocks, vineyards, fermentation, you really have a better sense of where the vintage is going. That's incredible.
1: I, I hope you're sipping those.
3: Just
2: kidding, most importantly.
3: Well, um, we sometimes I always say we we are very, you know we need almost some drivers sometimes to help us drive us around because we are testing a lot of wine. But I guess the system is getting used to it. Um, that,
1: it's an incredible number. You know, Philippe, can I sorry, ask you?
3: Yeah, yeah, please ask me the question. Sorry, I lost yeah, the field. Yeah,
1: bit. I just wanted to follow on to what Jean said. So... Are there vintages now over the course of your career where it's come together and you think back and you say 1997 in Bordeaux or 2009 in Napa that you can remember that stand out?
3: Yes, there's many many vintages. I mean, I feel like uh, that's I mean that the fun part when uh, winemakers meet and then go for dinner with uh, with wine, we always kind of talk about a uh, favorite vintage, and then it's a it's a very subjective thing. I would say, um, you know, I, if I was in Bordeaux, it would be a little easier because, as you know, Bordeaux has been a little bit less consistent. Uh, vintages to vintages, uh, based on the climatic condition, at least in the past, uh, and I'm sure we'll we'll go to a climatic change. But in the past, uh, uh, we used to have only three uh, out of ten vintages to to be. Uh, to be good ones, so it was a little easier. But in California, as you know, the weather has been much more consistent, especially during the maturity process of the grapes, which I think this is the most important part to, to really uh, uh, finalize the, the the final product. So uh, it's a little bit more difficult, but like we say, um, I got lucky. My first vintage in Napa Valley was 1991. It's still one of my favorite of course the first love the first one uh, but because um, we always there's two different currents it's like you read away like the what we call the cooler vintages with a little bit cooler climatic condition higher acidity wines which usually are a little darker food profile and if they have again the tannic structure to basically be able to edge uh, they tend to be my favorite so 91 you know, 2010 on the earlier side, and 2016 uh, uh, and 18, uh, even more recently. So they're, they're some of my favorite because of uh, the point that I just made. Uh, and then you have, I still, you know, like some of the exuberance, I would say, um, uh, of some of the warmer vintages that you we can have. Like 1997, um, was probably uh, in the 90s at least uh, the first vintage with a little bit more warmer uh, feel to them, so slightly higher alcohol, a little less acidity, so a sweeter food profile, if you like. For people who like those kind of wines, a little bit more lush, a little bit more sexy, if you wish, they're going to love those vintages. The 97 is a bit part of it. We have 2002 as well. Um, on the more recent uh, vintages uh, uh, we have basically um, a 2015 uh, really one of the warmest in uh, in california where we harvested about a month earlier than normal so that's the fun part of uh, you know obviously the wine business is really to have all those really significant differences every year and uh, like i always say um we we uh that's part of the winemaking that we talk about. Uh, of course, we're not making soup. So every year we have to adjust. <laughs> and uh, and there's always a good story on each vintage that I'm sure Jean would share with you guys because um, he always remembers the fun side of uh, everything. So yeah, yeah, but, yeah Sean, Jean, what, about being a little long. Yeah,
1: no worries, that was great. Uh, Jean, uh, why don't you do your uh, memorable vintages for whatever reason and, and transition from that to climate change, because climate is so massive in what you're describing. Uh let's talk a little bit about the impact of that uh on 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 the wine industry uh, everywhere.
2: Well Greg with pleasure and I think that it has to start, you know, by just the the, the the real point of you asking that question for me shows one of the great greatness of 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 wine and and that is diversity. Right, you asked Philippe and now me to kind of point out the vintages that they like. Well, one of the greatness of the wine as a product is its diversity. I mean, it's very rare uh, that other products have that much of diversity. Right? If I ask the audience, when was the last time you know you drank you know a great Coca-Cola? Well, in, in these type of beverages, the goal is to reproduce the same product over and over again with the same profile. Uh, In the wine world, it's it's quite the opposite, especially on the high-end part, the small small producers, they do the opposite. The bigger producers, because of sales reasons and sales channel, sometimes have to play a certain profile, what we call a house taste, to be able to have the same profile for people to buy over and over again. But at smaller production and at higher-end production, you usually tend to express the vintage. And as Philippe said, You know, these vintages are either a certain profile or another. Are they colder or warmer? Are they low extraction, high extraction? And I'm like him. I think because I stated that the biggest fault of Napa is the heat. For me, the most important thing to mitigate and to work on is actually counteract the effect of that heat. Uh, So the colder vintages, as he says, you know the 12th and 16s and the 18s, and to a certain point, to the 21s, uh, uh, are really vintages that, because of less heat, did not burn the acidity. And let me put it in your mind this this way, because it, it's for me, it's, it's almost self explaining In in any wine, but especially of course in red wine, the backbone of a wine is its acidity, the freshness, and the skeleton is its tannins. And so the more you have that backbone, that acidity, uh, and that skeleton, the more you'll be able to hold the wine together. And in regions that are fairly warm, uh, you know, or warmer climate regions, as we call them, like Napa, well, the more you have uh, so much body, so much density, the more you need the freshness to counterbalance. Kind of balance. So I'm a better, I think, I'm a, I prefer the vintages that are a little bit colder because I think we get more, of that freshness and acidity. And so that comes to climate change, as you said, and and, and that heat mitigation. Well, we can all agree that climate change is happening. And so the first thing you have to ask yourself is, how is it impacting your industry, your world, the world as as a global entity, and what can we do? Well, first, we have to find a way to handle the current situation right, that we are living in because it's a reality. We cannot change the past. So first is change what we can. Well, the effect of that in Napa is more extremes. When we have rain, like in October of 2021, we have 10 to 12 inches of rain. Uh, When we have extremes of heat, it goes up to 110 sometimes. So these extremes are getting more extreme. Um, So you have to ask yourself, what and how can I do that? In, in and where does the future lie, right? Uh, because you could say, okay, it's getting warmer, but if it gets warmer with a very big ocean influence, it might create more fog and ultimately cool it down. So you really want to not jump on a boat, but study along, again, because it's one vegetative cycle per year. So you study this climatic change, this climatic evolution in order to ensure that you are actually taking the, night, the next steps, the right steps, uh, with science, because because we have to use that as a tool, uh, you know, to come and play along. The last 50 years, Greg, we're really in the improving of the winemaking. I think the next 50 years will be dramatically vineyard driven, including, of course, mitigating climate change. And so that means shade cloth, which is just you know cloth that you put on the cluster zone to limit uh, the internal uh, temperature of the berry, so the enzy- enzymatic activity can can continue. Certain clones, certain rootstocks, all of of these, you know, this research that can really tone down the extremes that we're
1: experiencing. Philippe, I want you to uh, uh, chime in on uh, climate change, but one of the things that you told me. Uh... In, in some of our conversations is that, uh, as the climate changes, uh, to to what Jean was just saying, you know, maybe there's more fog and that might help in a certain region. So it's not just like everything else around a changing climate. There's maybe some positive and some negative. And you told me that uh, the, the, they're now making champagne in the UK because of climate change, uh, which I, 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 uh, I said was uh, something I, I hadn't heard. but. Uh, maybe good for French British relations. Uh, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the, 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 the climate change being differential, uh, just like it is in other ways within the wine industry? I mean, maybe there are some regions that will get warmer and you'll be able to make a, a, a different, maybe higher quality wine, while there are other regions that are negatively affected. You know, uh, I don't know whether I'm being too simplistic on that, but over to you, Philippe.
3: Yeah, no, you, you have a great point, Greg. We have to kind of thinking. I mean, this is at the end of the day what we all talk about it on a daily basis. And then uh, I will say since really 2017 in Napa Valley, especially uh, when we we saw some really dramatic shift who really impacted the wine industry and the business sense of, of it. So, but like you said, there's also some really positive impact uh, and in a way, fun. I mean, I, I see it more as fun because it's always about learning and changing and adapting. So uh, as you can imagine, um, uh, basically the, the, the colder region are benefit uh, benefiting to this. Uh, uh, included, um, I, you know, some some really northern uh, part of Europe who are starting to plant vineyard, uh, Norway, Sweden, all those kind of regions, one region who couldn't do it. And like you mentioned. Now we have uh, in the UK uh, some producers who started to plant some champagne, Why champagne, because basically um, this is a grape that you can harvest at a much lower degree of alcohol, so you don't need to have a lot of sun like you you have to when you produce Cabernet Sauvignon, for example. So they're they're being able to make champagne, and I think it's a very successful business. Uh, I was talking to um, one of a client from Argentina who are making some wines sh- uh, in Patagonia right now, uh, some Chardonnay in Patagonia. So that's part I think it's very positive. It's like we are learning about basically new sites to be kind of simplistic. And um, we are learning as well about. Uh, how we can adjust, you know, under this condition and keep the wine business going, we've been around for over 2,000 or more years, uh, as we all know. Uh, but you know, unfortunately, the the region—if I want to talk about uh, the the region—we are a little bit more challenged. Uh, Napa Valley is definitely one of them. Uh, what we nobody—I mean—what we really realized also. It's really the uh, the tenacity uh, uh, of a vine, a vineyard, uh, the vine itself. It's an incredible plant, basically, who have been already challenged over the years many, many times and always adjusting under really drought conditions. So I would say, to simplify it, I mean, at least for me personally, it's all about water, as we all know: water, water, water so the drought have been terrific in california as we all know over, over, over the years and um, we're really starting to be smart about water especially in a vineyard and as well at the winery we have to realize that you know irrigation takes a lot of water and we want it to really Uh, create uh, a high level of science, basically, to be able to monitor the vines and to really understand exactly when the vine needs water. And so before it was just a visual observation, and uh, it was more like a tradition of irrigating the vines every week, if you wish, and uh, you know, when you kind of do the math, it's a lot of water. It's uh, 80 to 100 gallons per vine. Uh, It's 200 plus uh, 1,000 gallons per acre. You have to think about 45,000 acres are planted in APA, so you just do the math and you realize it's a lot of water. So we were able with some technology to really divide it by half, and it is even more in some category. And the winery has been the same. I mean, to produce one gallon of wine, you have to use sometimes 800 gallons of water. So we are trying to really be so much smarter about really how to use the water in a winery as well to recycle the water to to find a way to do this. So anyway, you guys know what's happening and on the top of it, I will say to to finish uh, the talk about uh, global warming. There is a lot of thoughts, obviously about how to help the environment, especially. Uh, uh, you know how to basically avoid. Uh, uh, you know, those uh, carbon emissions, so I was uh, trying to find the word, how to to limit those carbon emissions, and so you're seeing a lot of more work uh, in a vineyard limiting the tractor usage, thinking about electric tractors now. Uh, using basically cover crop to really capture the carbon instead of releasing it to the air. Uh, using um, uh, ship, if you understand my French accent, to really instead of having tractor mowing the grass, but bring the ship to basically uh, uh, avoid to have to take care of the weeds uh, in a vineyard. So we're going a little bit back on time uh it's very labor-intensive but uh there's a lot of thoughts we're kind of put in right now in the industry to really obviously be more sustainable greg. and environmental friendly sorry greg, yeah, greg,
2: greg just just, just to just add to that mm-hmm. he's not talking about bringing the titanic he's talking about bringing sheep. Sheeps to eat the grass. <laughs> therefore, you don't know what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I needed this yeah. translation. Yeah. Here. I the it. It. the yeah. translation was helpful. <laughs>
1: uh, helpful. I, I think I was there before, but that was helpful, John. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to uh, uh, offer the audience a couple of questions. So, while you get teed up, I want to pull Chris back in uh, because Chris, again, uh, really identifies Jean and Philippe, who are fantastic. Your job, though, is to match Winemakers and and these are probably two of the very best from everything that I can see. You know the quality of what they produce, and so you're matching them to a certain client and consumer. And then you you know there's other wines winemakers that you're probably matching to others. So, you know how, how do you go about that? And and how many winemakers do you know?
0: Well, I, I I know quite a few, but it's not always just about finding the right winemakers. Finding the right wineries, and so you know Napa is very popular, obviously, right? And they're you know, a lot of Cabernets. That's that's where it's at. But there's there are a lot of other wines, a lot of other varietals that that are popular as well. So, Chardonnays and Pinots uh, coming out of Russian River. And uh, Oregon has wonderful wines up there that that's cooler, higher acidity, really good with the food. Uh, we also work with uh, I work with some consultants that that work with old world wines. So the Burgundies, the Bordeaux, and that that type of thing. Um, but because I'm fortunate enough to live close to Napa, I've gotten to know a number of winemakers, you know really through Jean and through my friends uh, up there. Um, I met uh, Philippe through Larry Fairchild, whose wines are here t- uh, tonight yes. um, with the Stones. And uh, so it's, you know, really I look at what the demand is from our customer base and then I'm reaching out to the wineries and then I get to know a lot of the wine makers. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of the process. But, you know, they're great wines made all over the world, right? And um, I, I, Cal, uh, California is a pretty, Wonderful area to be working out of.
1: Yeah. So, so, yeah. You know, yeah. so the climate hangs in there, given. Uh, yeah. A, that's what I was it's a wondering about. National treasure. Too. Is, is yeah.
0: it? Is it an engineering issue? I've heard. Uh, actually, Philippe and John, you know, Andy Beckstoffer said this is an engineering issue, and I, I, don't know how, how far that goes, but uh, because the continue, if it continues to warm up, yeah. uh, as, as Philippe pointed out, you know, with the lack of water. You know, but
1: part of what, uh, and I, I do want to take questions, but part of what Philippe and John are saying. It warms up maybe it, i mean it's not great for napa but maybe you yeah, make exactly. better wine in oregon uh but questions yeah. from the audience i'm happy to uh finish this myself but i'm also happy to take a couple of questions hand in the air immediately so right there
3: thank you and thank you guys for this conversation it was it was really fun um i'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on organic and all natural wines and more specifically what role sulfates and pe- pesticides play in the winemaking process. If it impacts the taste or the acidity of the grapes, or if it's more so for yield and if you guys foresee any of the big wineries shifting more towards all natural and organic.
1: Excellent. Well, why don't we go backwards? Philippe, you go first this time. Uh, but you can see the sustainable focus in the room. Uh, so go ahead.
3: Are you sure? Because uh, I feel like Jean really wanted to talk. Really, really, <laughs> he was like ready to jump in. So
1: you <laughs> like uh, me at the end of this. Uh, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah.
3: It's uh, it's uh, thanks for the questions. It's actually uh, a very strong one. Um, I would say uh, one of the be- benefits of uh, I will start with global warming is actually uh, the warmer, drier weather really help to uh, uh, to farm your vineyard organically and to really avoid any pesticides. So in a way, that's really the, the very positive part of it. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, on a very wet uh, year, which never happened, more like in Bordeaux, you have to really uh, 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 basically apply uh, some pesticide or product sometime all the way up to certain times when in a normal year, dry year, you we used to do it six times. Now we did down to three times. So this drier weather really helped uh, the vineyards to be totally organic and I will say I don't know Jean, but on my side uh, all the high end wineries that uh, I'm uh, Really involved uh, either way, certified organic or they are not certified, but they are organic um, because they don't really need the certification uh, because it doesn't really help uh, them to sell their grapes grapes at a higher price point or to sell the wine at a higher price point. So they don't need that right now. And they're also uh, farming in biodynamic as well, which is kind of another step, I would say, of farming. but but that's the beauty I'll say uh, over the last 30 years. is really the increased level. Maybe a has a number uh, in terms of uh, how many, what the percentage now of uh, Napa Valley farms that way compared to a more conventional one. Right. And um, I feel like no matter what we are going, the evolution we are probably going to see a different regulation on uh, with wine and the label that we've seen in Europe, you know, with what they call the wine bio, basically, Um, where we could see that in the future in Napa Valley, where we have a little green sign on the label or something kind of help the consumer to understand that the wines have been organic. After in in, in talking about sulfites with the wine, it's a very, uh, it's a very important point because sometimes people get confused about really uh, 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 organic wines, uh, there's no really high-end organic wines uh, in the world at this point, means the uh, people don't use any sulfur or are certified organic in a winery, um, but no matter what we are, obviously Jean and I, our focus is really to create a really healthy product. I mean, we are, we are very non-interventionist type of winemakers, so we really minimize uh, uh, anything that we feel are uh, not healthy for for the consumer and, and suppress it uh, to make sure the wines can age for a long time and the use of sulfites are decreased. But we still need to have some in you know, wine to be able to age those wines because that's how we make wine to be able to age 30, 50 years. But we definitely suppress it to a level that it's really insignificant at the end. Okay, John. Here's your chance.
2: Well, Greg, um, as you guys know, I was born and raised in Switzerland, but I'm everything but neutral and diplomatic. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna start with this statement to excuse my passion in the next segment. Um, I will start with this. Thank you for the question. I think it's right on the point. It is our duty, our obligation, to move towards giving to the next generation an environment and a planet that is at least as good, if not better than what we received. Therefore, it is our obligation to go, if we can, into the organic world, not as a trend and a marketing tool, but as a true philosophical belief. And I think that's the first thing that changes. Yes, in a climate, as Philippe stated, as warm, and easy to farm as Napa Valley. I wish and I discussed that with Suckling, who is one of the guy that rates our wine, we almost should make it the first U.S. Appellation to have a mandatory organic farming practice. You're going to find opposition because it's true that especially managing weed growth and herbicides and stuff like that, especially the biggest growers are sometimes working with margins so thin that if you add an additional extra hundreds of dollars per acre to farm, it might create a problem. But it is for sure, as Philippe stated, our need to go towards this way. Now, natural somebody you mentioned in your question natural and then you you mentioned sulfate natural wines is a not classified and defined by law and so for the longest time natural wines were for me and i'm not saying everything because a winemaker that says always is either lying or stupid i'm not lying i'm not saying i'm not stupid but i'm not lying so so Natural wine for many cases in in the past were just a dumb bucket of the wine industry to make horrible things and to have all their reject pretend to be natural wine. It takes so much precision, so much wine knowledge, so much research to get to this point that very few people can become and make a product that way. Let me explain something. I consult for a winery in Tuscany called Monteverde. We started in 2004 roughly. It took us, ladies and gentlemen, about 12 years to be organic and biodynamic, and it's nowhere to be stated on the label because it was not done, as Philippe mentioned, for marketing purposes, because today it does not add the market value of wine to be publicly organic or biodynamic. It does not still. Is it a mistake? Maybe. But we did it out of belief that something is going to change dramatically the equation and that change is about to happen. Starting in 2024, the European Union is going to request that all bottle of wine state everything that was added to the wine. And therefore, will make the product much more honest towards the consumer to represent what was truly done to it. And I think that's just going and that just showing that society is finally, in a way, realizing that we need to make. And that's a discussion Philippe and I had earlier today for the last time. Make a product that is health conscious with very little product intervention, and that is just a reflection of nature Well, boy, that was really well said
1: by both of you. I'll take one more question from the audience, uh, or I've got plenty for uh, for Jean and Philippe. Yes, sir, please. Yes, yes.
2: Hi there, thank you very much. This has been very interesting. Um, and this may be counter, I don't know how everyone's gonna to react to this question, but um,
3: in terms of drought resistant and pest resistant uh, plants, are you looking into Genetically engineered plants. Just because I know it's done in agriculture in general uh, throughout the world, Europe has an issue about it. But I'm just curious if that's being employed in the uh, 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 wine
1: industry. Jean, you go first on this one now.
2: Yeah, uh, with, with pleasure. Yes, uh, of course, it, it is being done and it is being researched. But as you know, certain European countries, in particular, have a. Uh, 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 forbidden any use of genetically modified plants, so so you have, we have to be precise, but also understand the impact of such decisions. So yes, there's plenty of research, especially in rootstocks for drought resistance in certain varietal uh, for, for pest resistance and fungus uh, resistance and so on. But, But sir, there's things that are simple as looking in the past as solutions. And I'm going to give you a very Easy thing to understand. We used to back hundreds of years ago in France, Philippe's country, not mine, unfortunately, um, um, to have a, a, a training system of the plant called goblet. So it's pretty much where a vine grows and where all its canes and branches just fall back down without a trellis system then of course the trellis system came for mechanization reason but we're seeing that these goblet right these head prune vines are extremely efficient against heat because the the canes when they fall back down create a microclimate by its transpiration and the shape provided by the cane that fall back down that within the canopy and within the plant it actually mitigates heat And limits water need of the plant. So, believe it or not, we're actually, and uh, Philippe and I work together on a vineyard and on a project that is actually replanting a quite large surface that is actually looking instead of being in the dsp vertical shoe positioning system to putting back these head proof vines just to mitigate and limit the impact of water so it is for sure the future and i think between tradition and science we'll find a solution please yeah, uh, yeah so um,
3: you know obviously uh, well said show um it's always basically what John is saying. You have to look to the past to really see the future. And uh, you know, that's the wine business, especially uh, looking at all the Mediterranean, you know, countries. Imagine this wine, of course, made uh, in all those countries for so long. Uh, they've been experiencing drought and those kind of condition. And so we are looking at really like, um, uh, actually uh, Jean says the architecture of the best plant to really to fight this kind of droughtness. And we are looking as well. Uh, our, you know, the evolution of the rootstock, the rootstock, you have to understand. They are the roots in the ground. They are very important part of the plant because they stabilize the plant. There are the roots are getting all the nutrients. So we are really looking at, you know, there's all kind of rootstock that we can choose from. And of course, now, compared to in the past, instead of having a stock where like very low in vigor, we are kind of shifting to something very high in vigor so the vine doesn't need as much water. We are like Jean mentioned, our clonal selection for each type of grapes who are more resistant to the drought. So there's definitely some research, but all those shifting of research basically are looking at the past because they are looking at the different type of grapes who are planted, you know, in their own region. Um, and that's what I almost love about this shifting of global warming. It's like we went to really uniform the whole, oh, sorry about the word, but making the wine business a little bit more uniform on an international basis means drinking the same kind of wine almost. I uh, pushing the envelope and then that's really the shifting really help to go back to the past and add a lot of more type of grapes people. We want to learn more about how those older varietals and varieties of grapes are handling the drought. So that that's really part that I really uh, uh, love uh, to see. And I think the future is going to be very interesting. We are in a very interesting time of the wine industry.
1: Well, listen, uh, you two uh, have been fantastic. I want to thank both of you, Jean and Philippe and Chris uh, for being here with us. Bravo. (laughs) My colleagues know that I always close these events with a quotation that's relevant to, uh, hopefully relevant to uh, the dialogue. Uh, So there was a, a football coach named Vince Lombardi who borrowed from Aristotle a quote on excellence and when i uh, even when i met you the first time the two of you and chris as the uh, intermediary but listening to you today the dedication to getting it right and the effort that you put behind it so lombardi said the following he said quote perfection is not attainable but if we chase it we might just catch excellence and the two of you have unequivocally caught excellence so thank you again very much for being here Thank you to our Rockefeller Capital Management clients, my colleagues, friends of Rockefeller uh, for another terrific event. Uh, uh, All the best uh, with the the great weather in the Northeast and we'll see you all soon. Thank you, Chris.